Good morning. My name is Will. It's nice to see you. Nice to meet you. Uh, one of the pastors here at New Life Press. And today we're going to look at one of the most famous passages uh, in the Bible. It's typically called the Transfiguration. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Mark chapter 9. And if not, we could go ahead and just read this together on the screen. So if you're able, uh, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We do this as uh, an act of respect, an act of worship, uh, a way to show our heart and reverence for the Word of God. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. I'm going to read to verse 13, and this is God's Word. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to do or what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And this is God's word. You can take your seats at this time. Well, we're continuing along in uh, this series called Encounters with Jesus. And one of the reasons we're doing this is because when we kick off our ministry year in uh, September, we always have a spiritual focus or a spiritual theme. And for this year, we felt that God was calling our church who is richly blessed in Jesus, both spiritually and in some cases materially. And we felt that God was calling us back to Christ and then pushing us out and calling us to serve our church and one another. And so our hope and prayer is that in some small or big fashion that each and every one of us would be able to take the resources and the blessings that we have from Jesus and serve our neighbor, serve one another, serve our family, serve our church. And that's the hope that we begin to look at in Encounters with Jesus, because whenever you see somebody come to Christ, they never walk away the same. They always have a change of heart, a change of mindset, a change of perspective on life, so that they begin to use all that God has given them and created them with for the sake of his kingdom and to bless people around them. And that's our hope, and that's why we're looking at various passages of Encounters with Jesus and today we look at a famous one called the Transfiguration. And you might be thinking, well, Jesus goes up to this mountain, he changes into this glorious picture of white light, that's heavenly glory, and you're thinking, well, he's just showing off and then revealing a little bit about himself in a way that's sort of fancy. And you're absolutely right about that, but if you read the passage in his details, Jesus, he transfigures not just to show off, but he ultimately did it for the disciples. He transfigured. He made himself brilliant and glorious and beautiful. But the passage says he did this for the disciples. 
Because if you look at verse 2, it says he was transfigured before them. And then it was done for the disciples. It was before them in verse 2. And there appeared to them, verse 4. And then the cloud says, listen to him, verse 7. So everything in this encounter is really for the disciples that the transfiguration, this sort of transformation into the beautiful white light of God's glory was for the disciples. He did it before them. He told them to listen to him. He said, I'm going to cover you and be with you. And so that's something we can consider. And I think there are at least three things that we learn about the transfiguration for you and me. Now, what, is we, what did the disciples learn? If we see Jesus did this for them, what did they learn? What do we learn? And at least there's three things that we could learn. First, a transfiguration, it teaches the disciples about Christ. It teaches them. Secondly, the transfiguration comforts them because the disciples were just about to get going in their ministry and they're going to lose their Savior. And then thirdly, it also sustains them. Now, in the moments of suffering, it gives them grace, it gives them hope, it gives them a reason to continue to move on. So three things that we learn about the transfiguration, it teaches them something theological, it comforts them in their moment of uncertainty, and it also gives them strength. It sustains them in their ministry and their life of suffering. So let's look at each of these three, and the biggest and longest point will be the first one about teaching the disciples, but let's get right into it. One of the things you'll recognize in the Bible is that God loves to teach on mountaintops. That's, in some ways, his theological classroom. He loves to teach on mountaintops. And so you see this back in various mountains in the Old Testament. We see a mountain here in our passage in the Transfiguration. You recognize that when Jesus teaches in Matthew 5-7, through 7, what do they call that sermon? The Sermon on the Mount. So God loves to teach on top of the mountains. And one of the lessons that we've got to learn here is that there is a great story that finally is being fulfilled that has great theological significance for the church and you and me. Because what Jesus is doing here is that he says, I'm going to replicate what was done in an older mountain back in the book of Exodus 19. Because there's such similarities between Exodus and Moses, the Ten Commandments, and Mount Sinai, and what Jesus is doing here in his transfiguration. These are just a couple of similarities, just to know and let you know what he's doing. Back in Exodus 19, God calls Moses up a mountain. Jesus, in verse 2, he brings the disciples up a mountain. In Exodus 19, God comes down in the presence of a cloud. Here, God speaks, and he comes down in a cloud, doesn't he? The cloud in the Old Testament was just the way that God wanted to show himself. His presence is there. So whenever people in the Old Testament knew, saw a cloud, they're like, okay, God's here. Someone important has arrived. Verse 2 says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up the mountain. After six days. In Exodus 24, 16, Moses was on Mount Sinai for six days before God, God called him up and gave him the Ten Commandments in the cloud. So over and over again, there are comparisons and similarities between Exodus 19 and Moses and Mount Sinai and what Jesus does as what they call the greater Moses, the fulfillment of Moses. That the Bible here is telling us that God loves a classroom on top of the mountain and he's teaching, he's interacting, he's revealing himself, but he does it in Mark chapter 9 in a climactic, once for all fulfillment. This is the, basically, it's the AP class where in Exodus 19, it's just your freshman class. Mark chapter 9 is trying to bring something out that's 
brilliant and remarkable in a way never seen before. And what is he trying to teach the disciples? His glory. Simply. He's trying to teach them, you know glory, you've seen it in the Old Testament. Jesus says, disciples, don't lose heart. Let me show you what I'm really about. And he transfigures before them. And it was breathtaking. It was so breathtaking that they just felt scared, according to verse 6. He's saying, this is my identity. I'm the son of man. I'm the son of God. Let me show you what I'm about. And he transfigures in a way that takes their breath away. It's almost as if Jesus has been saying, I'm Jesus. I'm the son of God. I'm the Christ. Let me not just tell you. Now I'm going to show you. And it's almost as if he just does a 180 and reveals all his brilliance and all his light and all his glory for you. I mean, can you imagine someone just changing in 180 for someone who looked very humble and normal and poor even, and all of a sudden he transfigures into this royal and regal, beautiful king of the universe? I mean, read verse 3, at least part of it. It says, his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. So it's a heavenly glory. Nothing on earth could bring something so wonderful and so glorious as what Jesus has done here. And he's teaching the disciples. It's spectacular. It's radiant glory. It's glowing whiteness. And I wonder what this would have looked like. And this is what you can learn. This is why it's the AP class. Because glory was back there in the Old Testament as well. In Exodus 34, when Moses, he tells the story again, goes up on the mountain, he gets the Ten Commandments, but because he was in the presence of glory, his face reflected the glory of God. So Moses comes down the mountain, his face is showing and glowing and reflecting the glory of God because he brought down the Ten Commandments. In Hebrews chapter 1, though, it says this, Moses reflected the glory. Hebrews 1, Jesus is the glory. In other words, in the same way that the moon will reflect the sun, it's saying that Jesus is the actual sun. Moses was that moon. There's a comparison here that goes from lesser to greater. Now, Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory because Moses' face reflected God's glory, but Jesus is the glory of God. Moses' face shined temporarily, but eventually it faded back to normality. Jesus never start, stops radiating because he's eternal. This is a theological note. If you ever read the Bible, there's always a show and tell. So whenever you see bright light, there's, any, there's something brilliant about to be shown and revealed. This is Jesus' birth, too, as you come around to Christmas. You know, there's bright stars. There's a luminosity. So you see it in Moses' face as temporary. You see it in Jesus that's final and climactic. Because what we know here on a theological point that Mark and Jesus is trying to teach us He's saying that the luminosity in the face of Moses is an indication of God's revelation. Does that make sense? It's a show and tell. The brightness of Moses' face says God is about to teach us. And when Jesus transfigures and saying, I'm the little radiance of God, I'm about to teach you about my glory, my identity, about my mission, and about the world, the universe, in fact. It's a big lesson. So in this first point, what practically, there's so many lessons to glean. Let me just give you two lessons to learn and to think about here. The first thing is to recognize that when Jesus transfigures and teaches about his glory, his weightiness, his brilliance, his majesty, the one lesson is simply to look at Jesus, to look at him. Now you say today, well, we can't look at Jesus today, but you can. You can look at him in the word of God by the Holy Spirit. 
But you look at Jesus, keep your eyes on him, because it tells us something very simply like this. Most of the time when God shows his glory, people were afraid and they turned away. But even Moses, who wanted to see God's face, was denied by God and says, you can't sustain my glory because if you see me face to face, my glory is so pure and bright, you're going to die. This is the first time in the Bible where disciples, sinners like you and me, could face Jesus and see directly the glory of God, but we weren't scared necessarily. We didn't have to turn away. We weren't dead, but we could look directly into Jesus and see the glory of God. Do you know why that's so important? Because it's saying for the first time in human history, there's a way to go to heaven. For the first time in human history, there's a way to see what innately humans are built up and made up, made for, which is ultimately for the glory of God. Now, let me try to hammer this home to make this intensely practical. In Exodus 33, 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. And then in verse 20, he says, you can't see my face because man can't see me and then live. But then in the transfiguration, the disciples were able to look directly at the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And what Mark is telling us is that Jesus is showing us, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm showing you this is the only way that sinful humans, were in the past would have been disintegrated in the glory of God, this is the first time through grace, truth, and mercy in about what Jesus is going to do, can face the glory of God and be set free to live. He's the only way, truth, and life. Now, you can say it this way. Paul Tripp, a counselor at CCF, once said, in the heart of man is our innate desire for glory, for brilliance. That's why we all love the roller coaster at Magic Mountain. That's why we all love to eat our favorite dessert, because we say this is a taste of heaven. That's why we all fall in love with the underdog story, or that we fall in love with the most romantic story. All these is what they call just sort of symbols or signals or identifiers that were made for something greater than ourselves because we're made in the image of God. Ecclesiastes says, God put eternity in your hearts. That's why you have this natural gravitational pull to something brilliant, something bigger than yourselves. That's why certain generations, they want to save the world. They want to become a somebody. You're attracted to something brilliant, something greater that you can produce. That's because you're made for eternity. You're made for glory. And for the first time, it's saying that in Jesus, you get that in the transfiguration. How can a sinner get what he wants? Well, you look at Jesus, he'll die for you. But Jesus says, all that you're looking for in this life, when he transfigures, he says, everything that you're looking for in money, relationships, success, and power, you finally have it in me. That's what Jesus is trying to say. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory, you know, a well-known book. In this book, he basically builds a case for the promise of glory, and he says that glory is directly connected to our deep human desire. And in his own way and fashion, he says it much more eloquently than me. He says, um, the center of the discourse of humanity, the reality of those deep moments that we have as human beings, where we experience a joy and an acceptance, a brilliance, we feel like we're flying in life. All that Lewis explains are really just glimpses, moments of bliss that really point towards our need for Jesus and our relationship with him. That's why sometimes you get a taste of it, but then it passes away, isn't it? You have that dessert, but then the moment only lasts for a second. You can see the most beautiful sunset, and it lasts for a minute, and then it passes away. 
you meet the love of your life, and you go on a date, and you have all these butterflies in your stomach, and then when you get married, you realize the harsh realities of marriage kick in. You know, we have all these brilliant experiences of joy and satisfaction in this life, but they never fully satisfy because they're just an echo of the song that we find in Jesus. They're just the scent of the flower that is in the Son of Jesus. And the first thing that we learn is that in your heart, in your life, the greatest desire that you have to make you resonate, to cohere, in order for you to be loving and cool, calm, and collected, everything that you enjoy in this world, which is really good, is only an appetizer of what you get in your relationship with Jesus. Because I've said this so many times, as Jay Packer writes in Knowing God, whenever you turn to Jesus, you always get more and not less. And why is that? Because he says everything else in this world that you love and give your life towards is only an appetizer of what finds fulfillment ultimately in Jesus. That's why you enjoy the good things of this world, but when you turn to Jesus, you always get more and not less. That's the first lesson that he's trying to teach us. He transfigures before them. And then really quickly, here's the second thing we learn. This is very implicit, and you know, I don't want to press it too hard, but I think when you look at Jesus, it makes life around you cohere and it makes sense. And if you're confused about life, confused about friendship, confused about your purpose and mission in life, confused as to why suffering happens or why life never goes the way that it does, the, one of the lessons you recognize here is that if you look at Jesus, things begin to make just a little bit more sense. Well, where do I get this in the passage? Well, don't want to press it too much. I think it's at least implicit. Have you ever thought that when the disciples saw the transfiguration and Moses and Elijah were there, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? You know, they didn't have social media. They didn't have photographs. They didn't have paintings. They didn't know what they looked like. Moses and Elijah lived centuries before the disciples. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I think somehow they just knew. Because when Jesus transfigured, when his kingdom glory and illuminating knowledge kind of clarified the world around them, it was almost as if when Jesus, the center of the universe, arrives, the world around begins to make sense. The Spirit speaks, Jesus speaks. I think that's why they knew it was Elijah and Moses. It wasn't as if they had a struggle with who this was and then have a dialogue with them. Is that you, Moses? Is that you, Abraham? Is that you, Daniel? They didn't, they didn't have to do that. They knew immediately it was Moses and Elijah because I think the moment when Jesus becomes the center of your life, you begin to see things as they truly are. I know that's sort of abstract, but that's what makes life cohere. It's a principle that you can apply. If you feel lost, if you feel confused, if you feel frustrated, disappointed, the beginning step in the transfiguration of Jesus to say, if you center your attention and heart on me first, the world around you may become a little bit clearer. You know, as that old song goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of the earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So if things are hard, and certainly life is hard, if things are confusing because sometimes you don't make sense of things, the process of healing, the process of perspective, the process of moving on can begin by looking full in the wonderful face of Jesus, at least implicitly in the passage. Let's move on. Secondly, and these two points are much quicker. 
First one, Jesus teaches them in the transfiguration. Secondly, he comforts them. Jesus brings them up to this mountain. He reveals to them not only knowledge and saying, well, I'm replicating Exodus 19 and Moses in a fuller way, but he also wants them to sense and experience this. And I said this in the prayer meeting this morning. I think when it comes to the transfiguration, certainly there's rich theological truths, but in some ways, I think the pastoral implication is that to fully get the transfiguration is not just through understanding it, but to experience it, to feel it, to sense it. I mean, they transfigured before the disciples, and verse 6 says, they were terrified and they couldn't make any sense of it. But Jesus is trying to comfort them. He's saying, I know you're going to have a hard life. I know that you have to, a big job as my disciples. You've got to plant the church. You're going to be martyred for your life. You have to set the course of human history in a different trajectory. That's a big job, and you don't know exactly what you're going to do. They're terrified. So he wants to comfort them. He wants to reassure them. See, outwardly, Jesus is weak and unimpressive, but then he transfigures and says, don't be fooled by a carpenter. This is what I'm really about in power and glory. And he says, you could be reassured. You could be strengthened in me. He's revealing to them who he really is and his comfort and encourages them to know that he's really for them and with them. Now, John Calvin has a wonderful quote about the transfiguration. He says this, Christ clothed himself with heavenly glory for a short time. His transfiguration did not altogether enable his disciples to see Christ as he now is in heaven, but gave them a taste of the boundless glory such as they were able to comprehend. This was not a complete exhibition of the heavenly glory of Jesus, but only under symbols which were adapted to the capacity of human flesh. He enabled them to taste, in part, what could not be fully comprehended. This is just a glimpse. Basically, Jesus says, I'm giving you a glimpse of resurrection, but you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything yet. He comforts them. And then what does God do? After he reveals himself, in verse 7, it says this, A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That word there for overshadowed also means to envelop, where we get the word envelope. You know, God enveloped them. He enveloped them. God comes down in the form of a cloud, and he enshrouds them. He covers them. He protects them. It's as if God is reassuring them and encouraging them and embracing them. He says, I'm going to be with you forever. Now, isn't it true if you have a little kid gets lost in a park, and he's crying for mommy and daddy, get lost and separated from his parents? You know, if the park ranger comes by, a security officer comes by, you have a little six-year-old boy just crying for mom and dad, he's scared. What's going to comfort that little boy? It's not if the park ranger says, Here's the map of the park. You know, you could go down this path and it'll lead you to Orangethorpe and you could find your way over to the mall or go over to the payphone. That kid is not going to know what you're talking about. The only thing that gives them comfort is the presence of mom and dad. And sometimes in life, we feel that we're lost like a little kid in life. And you're crying and sometimes you think the only way that you'll quell your anxiety make you feel a little bit more comforted, is if you could have a roadmap of all that's going to happen in your life. Ten years, this is what it's going to look like. These are the decisions. And you think that's actually going to work, but I'm telling you, it's not going to fully work. The only way that you could be really comforted is to know that Jesus is with you. And that's what God is trying to say. He came down in a cloud. He covers him. He picks you up. He's enshrouding you. He's enveloping you. He enveloped you by his very presence. Do you know why Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus? 
and why the fact that Moses and Elijah, knowing theology and the law, knowing the future and the prophet, you know why that didn't ultimately give comfort? It's because they were just there to roll out the red carpet for Jesus. Now, in Malachi 4 through chapter 4, 4 through 5, it's the only verse in the Bible that talks about Moses and Elijah together. And it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So you have Moses who represents the law. You have Elijah who represents all the prophets, not just in terms of insight, but the future. Now think about this. What's supposed to give the disciples comfort? You can know the law and all the theology and everything in the Old Testament, really important. You can have all the prophets that tell you the future. But he says at the end of the day, the only way you're going to be comforted is going to be through Jesus because after God went away and the light flickered and they sort of woke up, the only person who was left was Jesus. And what did God say from the voice in the cloud? Listen to him. He didn't say listen to Moses. He didn't say listen to Elijah. Showed all the law of the Old Testament Moses, all the prophets in Elijah. All of a sudden, lights open up. Jesus is left there standing. The voice comes out. This is the guy you got to listen to. That's how they got comfort. Such a simple commandment. You see, in point one, when God is teaching them, he transfigured, is basically saying, look to Jesus. In the second point, when he's comforting them, he's saying, listen to Jesus. You look at Jesus, and then you listen to him. Listen to what Jesus says. And how do you do that today? It's through church. It's through the sermon. It's through the Bible. It's through reading your Bible. It's through quiet time. It's through God speaking through your brothers and sisters and community group and discipleship group. But listen to him. Now, they say in our culture today, listening is a lost art in the world that we live in today. You know, it's everywhere. All you have to do is just Google it. David Brooks has an article in the New York Times, Perfecting the Art of Listening, and it says, we have absolutely lost the ability to listen. Absolutely lost the ability to listen. In family, at work, at church, organizations, our culture today has a low attention span. Forbes magazine says the average attention span of a of a Western American is about eight seconds. That's why commercials are shorter and shorter. That's why we've moved from more of an auditory community to a visual one. Our attention span is so short, and we have lost the ability to listen. Harvard Business Review says the same thing. In their companies and management, how do you deal with people? How do you cohere and galvanize a team? You have to focus on one of the highest priorities that we have lost in this world, the ability to listen. And then studies, this isn't, these aren't Christian publications, friends. This is just human publications. They say there's a lot of benefits. If you just listen to people, if you cultivate that ability to listen, it brings clarity in life. It brings trust in relationships. It brings understanding in your purpose to being. That's what all these articles are basically saying. How much more is it then if we could cultivate the ability to listen to the Savior of the universe he just transfigured before Peter, James, and John? Simple application. You want to be comforted? You want to know that, well, God, he covers you. But he says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. What is he about? The Jesus, I'll tell you, friends, he's speaking all the time. He's speaking into your idols. He's speaking into school and friends. He's speaking into parenting and money and relationships. There's no shortage of what God is speaking to you and me, in his son Jesus Christ, how to build friendships, how to prioritize your Sundays, how to think about world affairs, how to think about politics and military might, 
how to think about all the social justice issues that we go through. Jesus is speaking 24-7. Do you know why? Because in the past, God spoke through prophets. God spoke in a wide variety of ways in Hebrews 1. But he finally spoke finally and climatically in his son. Jesus has spoken into every aspect of every living universe of the world that we live in. Are you listening to him? Can you soak him in? Can you take him in? Can you handle it? See, if life doesn't really seem to be working well, and you're struggling, and it's difficult, and you're trying to figure out why you have relational difficulty, why you're unhappy. And I get it. There's sin. There's brokenness. Sometimes people are victimized. But your first step is simply what we learned here. You want to be comforted in life? Listen to him. Cultivate that ability to listen. And this leads us to our third point. Transfiguration teaches us. It comforts us, but it also strengthens us, it sustains us. Now, I went to Magic Mountain maybe like seven years ago with some leaders of the church. Um, I haven't been to like a, a roller coaster of that strength and magnitude maybe 15 years before, and I went on two of them, and I, I, honestly, I almost died. I, I thought the first one, it was just turning and twisting in ways that I didn't know roller coasters could do. So I went on the second one, which is didn't do any loop-to-loops or twirls, but it was the highest. I really thought I was going to touch the moon. It was the highest hill. And I remember when we went down, as fast as I've ever experienced in my life, I leaned over to the guy, I think it was Elder Tom, and I just yelled in his ear because I was, like, scared. You go up, and then you come down. I think that's great for roller coasters. I think it's a bad way to live your life. But life has its ups and downs. That's what we see in the passage. Verse 2, they go up a mountain. Verse 9, they come down the mountain. How are you going to stabilize yourself? And I'm not talking about being stoic and being bored and just trying to compromise. But how do you stabilize yourself going up and going down? Well, read verse 9 with me. It says this. They were coming down the mountains. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So there's all kinds of things that we won't get into here. But they're going up and down. My main point is, how do you stabilize yourself through the up and down? Well, in verse 9, what Jesus is doing, he's confusing the disciples again. He says, I just gave you a glimpse of resurrection power, but don't tell anyone. Jesus is always like that. Heals them, performs these miracles, and he always says, don't tell anybody. And the reason is because he wants everyone to see the full story. So don't tell anyone what you've seen until he's seen the full story. And the full story is after his death and resurrection. And he's trying to teach the disciples this, but they still don't get it. He says, don't tell anyone until I rise from the dead. And now the disciples are confused and saying, wait a minute, is our Savior saying that he's going to die? He just transfigured, he was wide and glorious, is he really going to die? Because Jesus is basically saying, the glory of my resurrection can only be fully understood in connection with the glory of my crucifixion. You can't tell the story of my transfiguration unless you know the story of my suffering and dying upon the cross. So he gives them a glimpse of what's to come in the resurrection. He says, don't tell anyone because you don't know the whole story yet. You're going to jack up the story. I want you to tell the story well, evangelize and preach well, but you can't do that yet because you haven't seen the story. You can only understand the transfiguration after you understand the crucifixion. You only understand the glory that I'm going to bring in the kingdom if you understand the suffering that I went for the kingdom. And so the disciples are savvy. They're trying to think through this. They knew their Bible a little bit. So in verse 11, what did they ask? 
You say, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Because the prophet says Elijah will come, he'll restore all things, but then Jesus says, wait, I'm going to die. So the disciples are confused. It says Elijah didn't come. There was no restoration of all things. And Jesus is saying, if you're the Messiah, you're supposed to come after Elijah. But Elijah didn't come yet. So the disciples, are, they're completely confused. And actually, I would be too. So basically what Jesus says is this. It's not literally Elijah. He's saying there's just a prophet that will come before me. And Jesus is saying that Elijah, that prophet was John the Baptist. Read with me Matthew 17, 12 to 13. It says, But I tell you that Elijah has already come. They didn't recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. You know that same phrase, whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And so the disciples are slow, but they finally realize the guy who was Elijah was John the Baptist. He came to restore all things. But they did to him whatever they pleased. They took his head off. They killed him. And Jesus says, Elijah has come, and now the Son of Man has finally arrived. What's the point of all this? How do you deal with the highs and lows of your life? A lot of family members in this church, there's a lot of highs in this life. Starting a new life in marriage. Sometimes your second week of marriage as a newlywed all of a sudden goes low. But you started out high. (laughs) Maybe you have a, a kid on the way. Maybe a new job. Um, rightfully so. You should celebrate that. Those are the highs of life. we got to celebrate That's what Isn't that what Paul said in Romans? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But a lot of us also have done a lot of weeping, haven't we? A lot of funerals, a lot of family members and parents who are struggling, a lot of heartache with kids as they go through school and they're struggling, a lot of heartaches in marriages. How do you sustain the highs and lows? Well, Jesus is saying this. His logic in basically saying Elijah and connecting to himself is saying, they did whatever they wanted to with John the Baptist. That means they're going to do the same thing to me. If they kill John, they're going to kill me. That's what he's trying to tell the disciples. And when you drive that logic through, it's basically saying, in this life, as good as it is, if they kill John, if they're going to kill Jesus... That means you're going to follow the same path of Jesus Christ in your suffering. How are you going to deal with it? By looking at the one who paved the path for you and suffered on your behalf. In other words, friends, in our world, especially maybe in Orange County, we're sort of shocked by suffering or we're sort of surprised and angry when life doesn't go the way it is. But Jesus says right here, they killed John, they killed me. If you're going to follow me, of course they're going to suffer because the pathway to the resurrection comes through the pathway of the crucifixion. The pathway of glorification comes through the pathway of suffering. And if Jesus suffered and then was glorified, we're going to follow that same pattern. So how are you going to go through the highs and lows, going verse 2 up the mountain, verse 9 down the mountain, going through the glorifying parts of your life, but also going through the crucifying parts of your life? How are you going to do this without imploding? is to rely on Jesus because he says, I gave you a glimpse of what's happening on the other side. Did you know that the word transfiguration, as we come to a close, that word is where we get the English word metamorphosis. It's basically coming from a butterfly, coming from a caterpillar into a butterfly. Metamorphosis. Jesus literally metamorphosized before them, and that word is only four times in the New Testament. One of them comes in Romans 12, chapter, chapter 12, verse 2. It says, be transformed in the way you think. 
be metamorphosized, that same power in which Jesus converted and transformed and metamorphosized from a carpenter into a brilliant regal king, that same power in the gospel of Jesus transforms your mind, metamorphosizes your mind to know that now you embrace suffering because we live on this side of the glory of Jesus where it's broken and sinful. You want to get through, you want to be stabilized, realize that your mind has been transformed. You have the very mind of Christ. It says, listen to him because the very words of Christ are yours. Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist and they did whatever they pleased with him. Jesus has come after John the Baptist to save the world and they did whatever they pleased with him. This world on this side of glory means that we're going to suffer and it may not be as easy as you think. But be encouraged because the same metamorphosizing power that Jesus has in transfiguring transfigures your life, transfigures your thinking, transfigures that same power is in you. If you just listen to him, embrace the gospel, your mind has been transformed to embrace all the kingdom glories and all the kingdom sufferings that may come your way because Jesus went down the path for you. So in his transfiguration, he teaches you he comforts you, and he also sustains you in the ups and downs of your life to get you through this. Jesus went the distance for you. He blazed a path of suffering. He already walked down that path, and he gives you the grace in him to suffer well. It'll hurt. It'll be hard. But even though it'll shake you, it won't devastate you, where others, other people won't have that gospel, won't have that metamorphosizing power, so they'll implode. But you have it in Jesus, so it'll hurt. You'll cry a lot of tears or suffer well. But if you hold on to him and realize Jesus went the way for you, you'll survive. And on the other side of the glory, you get what Jesus gave you, transfigurating, metamorphosizing glory. It's on the other side of the cross. He said, this is what's waiting. It's on the other side of the river, other, other side of death, other side of this life. As good as this world is, you're going through hardship. The other side, he transfigured. He metamorphosized. So this is what's waiting. I got, and you have it now, so get there. I'll get you there. Just focus on Jesus, and he'll get you to the other side. Because as it says, as the things of the earth go strangely dim in light of his glory and grace, the transfiguration of Jesus. Let's pray, friends. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we receive in your Son. We thank you that he transfigured before the disciples and before us. He came humbly, rode on a donkey, came as a carpenter, didn't come in a powerful king that people expected, but Jesus came as a suffering king. We pray that we would cultivate the ability to listen well to the suffering king so that we could be transformed from one glory to the next in 2 Corinthians 3.18 so that we would be able to be encouraged and to learn and grow and comforted and strengthened all because of what Jesus showed us in the counter that we have with the disciples. Thank you so much, God. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.